0: You're listening to the 15th episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for, or to, or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict, isolationist, rules- and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating around a song from my album, Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to the podcast like one watches a video of a car accident over and over again in slow motion. Episode 15, Irrelevant. This song was meant to express the self-pitying hurt and anger over how easily someone who once said they cared deeply about you seems to be moving on from you and having a great life. Writing and recording the song was so therapeutic that, like the one from the previous episode, I'm not dead sure who it's even about and have no memory at all of writing it, recording it, or anything. It was never performed live. No one heard it until now. I just know from file names that it was last worked on in 2008. It's based around a very silly joke, which is an indication of how upset I must have been at the time. Having to explain your jokes always makes them better and proves that they are the very best sort of joke. So let me do that. An elephant is that huge thing in the room that you're not supposed to talk about or notice, but you can't help it. And an elephant supposedly never forgets things. I think I read somewhere that this last bit isn't actually true, but I forget where. Without a project like this podcast, no one, including me, would ever learn or remember that years ago I wrote this song. We would just go on with our lives, with this song being entirely... oh. Carol, having in the day been that hot commodity in brethren groups, the well-connected, hot young chick from a family with strong brethren lineage on her mother's side, Didn't get dumped generally, but rather had to sift through all the chaff until she found a guy who suited her to the ground. She ended up settling on one who was only a tiny bit brethren and on his way out a thinker, a creative, and a romantic, someone exotic enough to help her walk away from her stifling, soul crushing brethren upbringing at a casual, leisurely pace and with a sense of humor. Did you ever have guys that were trying to be romantic and you told them you wanted to be just friends and it was really to not talk to them anymore? Kind
1: of. i tell them I wasn't ready to date. Yeah, it was hard for me to, you know, just straight up saying no. You know, I would feel for them, but I would try not to just lead them on.
0: You married young and you didn't date a lot, you said. But did you ever have that, you know, terrible experience of being dumped and really feeling it?
1: I actually did not. I I was the dumper.
0: You were the dumper? (laughs) It sucks to get dumped i have a whole song about what it feels like to watch that person go about her day just as if she never met you it's like you're completely shattered and she's absolutely fine
1: yeah it's heartbreaking i've watched that with one of my children so
0: oh yeah i guess as a mom you, you now get to experience a whole bunch of male experiences secondhand
1: yeah and then i was, you know i see seen with my brothers as well so it was it's an ending too it's a loss there's a grief there you know
0: Emily, however, knows all too well what it's like to get dumped. On the subject, she had only this to say, though. It really sucks
2: to get dumped. Yes. Really, really sucks. Always. Very hurtful.
0: Susan Isaacs wrote about the experience of being dumped repeatedly in her book, Angry Conversations with God, and shares a bunch of thoughts about it that whole song is about that experience of seeing the person that you were going to spend the rest of your life with and see seeing how easily they move on.
1: Oh, it's the worst. Uh, I, I remember when Jack, it was, I mean, I think he met somebody within two weeks of our breakup and just immediately glommed onto her. And I remember being so angry and upset about it, thinking, you know, was I, all those things that he said, and he, you know, wanted to marry me. I thought it wasn't all a lie. Why did I so easily believe and put my trust in what he said rather than my own self? Mm-hmm. You know, it's so dehumanizing and you feel completely annihilated by it. And I remember my sponsor saying, just, you know, pray that God would give him everything that he needs. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll pray that God gives him exactly what he needs, whatever. But uh, she did make me pray for him every day. And it, it actually worked because it was part of that process of forgiveness and letting go. And also doing the hard work of being alone. And I would say uh, a year after that, he moved back to L.A. and we became friends. And he was not in good shape because he had gone from one relationship back to another. And then he kind of, you know, glommed on to me as a friend for a few months, and then he split, he met somebody, they eloped, and uh, he moved to Europe. I don't know what his life is like, but people who jump into the next relationship, you know, there's a saying that I learned in the um, anonymous program of um, don't compare your insides to somebody else's outside, and people who jump into the next thing don't deal with what's going on you know you just you know I remember this is before Jack there was a guy that I really liked and he you know fell in love with somebody else and I was like just felt like God saying you know you got to play the long game here you don't know the whole story and not to say well you know like someone who looks like their life is great they're probably miserable on the inside I mean that's like what I wanted to think well it turned out he was miserable on the Mm -hmm. inside and when I got to know you know really got to know him as a friend a year later I was like wow I'm so glad I'm not with this guy anymore
0: melody experienced rejection within the context of a brethren marriage the kind of marriage in which you slowly come to realize you're married to someone you only thought you knew
2: i remember distinctly feeling just completely left behind when my ex-husband moved out uh found out he'd been cheating on me he was i came back from a trip actually and found a lipstick under our bed so he had had somebody over When, um, when I was out of town, we were already separated at that time and he had come over and used my house without me knowing it was technically his house too. We still co-owned it, but what a betrayal just to be, you know, discarded and then (laughs) find out he's coming in and using my stuff. Uh, so that was pretty tough. Um, I went to a divorce support group. Like I think I've mentioned before divorce care, which was super helpful and we learned something in there. One of the presenters, it was a, a DVD series. One of the presenters on the one of the programs mentioned how it's really hard. The loss you feel during a divorce is completely different than the loss you feel when your spouse dies. They're both grief. You're both, you know, grieving a loss, but the spouse who died doesn't leave willingly. Like they wanted to stay. They died. They left still loving you. And in a divorce situation, they're just, the spouse who leaves is just out of there. Like you're just rejected. You're left. You're abandoned. I actually, several years later, I was talking to a friend whose husband had died. She got stuck in a real pit of grief for a long time, had a hard time moving on. And then one day, um, a couple years after she had gone through a grief, finally found a grief support group and gone through that healing process, she said to me, you know, as hard as it was to lose my husband, I can't imagine how hard it would have been to lose him to divorce. And she said exactly what the divorce support group presentation said which was when, they, when you lose someone to death, they're not going willingly. When you lose them to divorce, they have chosen something else over you. They're out there living their best life while you're struggling just trying to survive.
0: From the darkness of future past, Joel rematerialized in my life. <laughs> Joel was interested in providing something to the podcast.
3: Getting dumped is one thing. There's another thing like it where you can be in a friendship with
0: with a woman or wh- whoever, whatever you're attracted to. You can have a friend who you find attractive and you get along and you're hoping for a little more
3: out of that and maybe once that's addressed, the friendship is just gone. And it's not, it's not, um,
0: there's no conversation. You're just, you're out. You don't get to return. You don't whatever the friendship was platonically is left to die. With me, I mean, I have, I have trouble letting go of people that I've been so invested in, but man, them, yeah. mar- them marrying a different guy, that does the trick for me.
1: Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, yeah, that'll, that'll do it. Yep. I think for a lot of times, like the ones that, you know, to women stay in relationships too long, you know, it was really that guy finding somebody else that, you know, ended it. Mm-hmm. And thank God, you know, those did
0: end. Years ago, long before Jordan Peterson had become a brand and online personality and pundit who was very focused on political issues and anti-wokeism and so on, I used to watch his university lectures on YouTube. I lost interest in him almost entirely once anyone but me had heard of him, having been into his university lectures before it was cool. One thing I remember him saying was that, when you are betrayed by a serious spouse or partner, buddy?' Um, When you are betrayed by a spouse or serious partner, what happens is you realize that not only is that relationship not at all what you thought it was, but that really, that person is not at all who you thought they were, given how they acted, and perhaps most troublingly, maybe you aren't who you thought you were either, you know, given what you signed up for so glibly and were so blindsided by. So now, you have to completely rethink and replan how you do your week. So many assumptions were incorrect. So many things you had leaned your full weight on had just tipped over and dumped you unceremoniously on your ass. More on the subject started in the previous episode about the song Had to Be This Way, God Stuff. I'm not really convinced that we choose to believe or not believe in God. I think, with Carl Jung, that people don't have ideas or beliefs, but that rather ideas and beliefs have people spreading them around and making choices driven by them. It's the ideas that are in the driver's seat more than the people. The people are the car being driven, I think, sometimes. So I have always believed in God. And lots of people raised strictly Catholic or Muslim or from the high demand group wing of the Plymouth Brethren tell me, that despite the environment they grew up in, the endless daily indoctrination, they never had a belief in God ever. Johann was raised going to church regularly and was very involved in it and tells me he really wanted to believe, but looking inside himself, eventually had to simply accept the fact that after a long hard look at himself, he simply didn't believe. He told me he listened for that call and it never came. And many people find they suddenly believe in God, or at least something, they say, though they've never been to a church or been taught anything about anything at all. So it seems that church upbringing is no guarantee of belief in God, and many people who grew up with it just never did. Christians often like to view things like being gay or being someone who believes in God as choices, matters of correct or incorrect belief, matters of obedience or disobedience. I'm not sure they're like that at all. And still other people say that they believed in God at first, but realized one day that they didn't anymore. And I can't help but note that the more deep and meaningful their once belief in God had been, the easier it is for me to now identify the new belief that has replaced it. Often they move on from God-bothering to tree-hugging or designer diets or similar. I know many formerly Brethren people who are passionate social activists where once they were deeply involved in a Brethren meeting, and they get annoyed if I describe them as having a worldview. They'd get more annoyed if I saw their social activism as kind of charitable missionary preacher kind of stuff. They insist that they had a religion once, and now they don't have one rather than my view, which is that their worldview changed on them. Because you can say almost anything with the word religion in it and simply change the wording to say worldview without it mattering much at all to anything. Watch me try it.
3: Why can't we just get rid of people having worldviews? Worldviews have caused most of the trouble, the wars and such, down through history. You can teach my kids civics, but don't teach them worldviews. We need to keep that separation between
0: worldview and state intact. It's not polite to talk about sex, worldviews, and politics. It must be comforting to have a worldview, but I just don't have one. Heather? Oh, she's a lovely girl. A woman with a worldview, you know. I have certainly... Been given reason enough to reject Christianity in precisely the way it feels like it has rejected me. My failure to connect to Christians outside of the group I was raised in, that won't let me worship in it, didn't help my attitude either. Stuff just wasn't as different outside of my Christian group as one would hope. But I haven't rejected Christianity, and I find myself squarely between people who reject it. And people whose understanding of and approach to it seems to me to be pretty divorced from, you know, the daily practice and concerns of Jesus Christ. Oh, I know. I've been told we're supposed to like Jesus, not be like Jesus. We're supposed to believe what Jesus said, not do what Jesus said. And that's supposed to be Christianity? I wasn't kicked out of a Christian group for not believing or even for believing things they thought were incorrect. I was kicked out for finding many things about our attitudes and habits and lifestyle very funny, rather than giving them the seriousness, the reverence they required us to give them. I didn't so much say they were wrong about everything, as that they were kind of hilarious. And eventually, I was shunned for snickering in writing at an outreach pamphlet. That and modeling a level of Christian liberty they felt would rub off on might corrupt their hash-smoking, unemployed, wife-abusing adult children. I always believed there was a God, so it was more a matter of what kind of God I thought He was and what I thought the relationship and interaction with me was or wasn't. And I didn't want to be superstitious about God. I know how that sounds. I mean, obviously, if I had my way, I would want God to be like a gumball machine— You keep putting in your coins, and you keep getting stuff every time you do that. Or like Santa Claus, bringing stuff to you if you're good. Or like Amazon, you order the good stuff, and it arrives promptly, or your money back. God's not like that, and it's very hard for me not to be superstitious about him. In concrete terms, when I looked at my life and my psychology— I noted that I always felt good about God myself and what I felt my relationship with him was when my plans worked out. If I planned carefully, put in time, money, and work, if that went well and worked out, and especially if things went more easily or just better than I'd planned, I felt like there was a good God peeking out from behind the molecules in nanoseconds, and that he was pleased with me that it was possible to please God." If, on the other hand, no matter how carefully I planned, how much time, money, and work I put in, if unforeseeable things unforeseeably fell through, went wrong, and fouled everything up, and things worked out surprisingly badly despite everything I did, I would feel like the God I believed in maybe didn't like me, and was scowling out from behind the molecules in nanoseconds, or had long stopped paying any attention to me at all, or that it wasn't possible to please this God." As you can see, a belief in God tends to make one take reality personally. What did I do to deserve this? And so on. How come he gets that? How long will the wicked prosper? Other wicked people, not this one. And that's a pretty stupid way to be. I mean, it's in the Bible, so we can look at it and see how stupid it is, but how honest it is. It's hard to stop being it, though. Last December, I dropped my newer car off to get a brand new pair of snow tires put on it at great expense, using money I definitely didn't have. The idea was to drive it through December and as far into the winter as I could before my driveway and lane needed the actual rickety aging four-wheel drive of my failing Ford Explorer to get out of it. Well, the snows were put on the car, and the car then promptly broke down at the garage. They said it needed a new fuel pump, and while it was getting that, we had such a snowstorm that I had to park my car at the neighbor's when I got it back, until the drive got plat out enough to get my car into the driveway, where with a sudden big melt and then another sudden big snowfall, it was trapped all winter. It just sat there, with the lovely new snow tires on it, unused. When I started the car a few times in the middle of winter to keep the motor limber, I noted that the brake light had come on, and the brakes had failed, and it was sitting on a patch of ice bordered by high drifts of crusted snow that meant with the treacherous driveway never getting safer to walk on, let alone drive on with a rear-wheel drive car all winter, that that car, with its wonderful new snow tires, was not going to be drivable all winter, until the snow and ice receded, that is, and I could get the brakes fixed. So I just left it in a snowbank and tried not to be superstitious at God not smiling down at all, I thought on my just trying to get to and from work each day and be a responsible car owner. So, approaching the end of April, the snow and ice finally mostly having melted, I dropped the car back at the garage in town, after a particularly harrowing drive-in with essentially no brakes on it. I left it there all day, then got dropped off after work by a fellow teacher at the garage, only to be told by the mechanic that the new fuel pump that had been installed with the new tires last December... Seemed to have failed. The previous winter, it had been the old Ford Explorer breaking down with a dead starter, getting towed into town to a different garage to put a new one on, having the new starter fail, and paying to get the beast towed into town again to get a replacement starter put on for the replacement starter. But this year, it was being stranded in town with a car that wouldn't start and a phone whose battery was dead. Using the mechanic's cell phone, I called a cab, which, along with a tow truck, I've been getting all too familiar with in the past few years, and was charged only eighty dollars to be driven out to where I live by a cabby whose local accent and nonstop machine gun delivery for the half hour drive was so colorful that he reminded me of a Canadian Gerald from Clarkson's farm and I sneak recorded a snippet of him talking. <laughs> Put the run at a German shepherd the there, Dave. He went buddy shaking my head, me and the guy ran off the a shepherd you were barking, my truck were loading. She got
3: it, like, right of the dog, got
0: At the time of recording, I look forward to getting my car back, to pay slightly less for gas each week, and with the need, of course, to pay someone to get those winter tires back off the car and all seasons put back on it. And I believe in a God, so I'm trying not to be superstitious about any of this, trying not to think that he just hates me for annoying Christians. In the case of Michael Vedder, it's not a car that's unexpectedly breaking down and going into the shop, but a son getting pneumonia and a constellation of comorbid ailments being in the hospital. So there's that. But like I said, not being superstitious about God and living your days imagining him liking you or frowning down at you based on whether they're out of your favorite kind of tea at the store or whether your car needs $200 or $2,000 worth of repairs— It's hard to stop being silly about that, despite the Bible presenting that attitude as a silly one. Hard not to give little tests and trials for God, like Gideon did, asking God to essentially dance in a box for us, according to John White. Hard not to take every misfortune, every bit of social conflict and shame, personally. And then, what about if you have depression? Depression can be about feeling bad stuff for no good reason, But it also can be about not feeling good stuff despite good reasons to feel it. And failing to feel good when you think you should or feel you're supposed to feels pretty horrible. That's the most depressing thing of all. You feel like something's wrong with you. You're missing the happy chip or whatever. If you suffer the kind of depression that makes you feel unlovely, a Christian group can fairly easily make that a whole lot worse. And also may actually have a hard time making you feel good about whatever it is that it needs you to feel good about, which makes you feel bad instead, and so on, and so on, and so on. And it makes them angry with you. A Christian group can either make you feel like you're not a very good or lovable person or, possibly and, make you feel like something is wrong with you and you're troubled and troubling if you're not feeling euphoria and excitement about certain things it takes quite seriously. For example, various guest speakers, social gatherings, or a worship service, or retreat, or book, or something. And don't even think about laughing at it. Oddly, I think the best thing a Christian group can do is to simply let people be and not dictate how they should feel about anything and just let them be around when they feel like it, feeling more and more at home and not continually scrutinize them and comment on their level of happiness, thereby making joyfulness the most daunting but highly inescapable goal ever in that group. Are you excited? Are you excited? Aren't you excited? Well, the The more more you ask me that, the the more more agitated agitated and stressed I feel, the more more upset. Does does that that count? Ultimately, this song is about feeling resentful instead of feeling valued. It's one thing to feel less self-loathing, to feel less horrible, but feeling wanted? The very idea, getting even a taste of that, is absolutely intoxicating. And as we know, the leap of faith, the trust, the hope is to feel loved by God, by a Christian group, by a young woman? Here's the double whammy. Being loved by someone only very temporarily helps people who suffer from feelings of shame and self-loathing, especially ones that were inculcated and used strategically throughout their childhoods. Some people grew up in groups, sometimes Christian groups, that used rejection, threats of rejection, to get their compliance. And being rejected by someone they experience profound feelings of love for is worse for them than it is for more emotionally healthy people. In fact, it does further damage to problems with trust and hope and self-acceptance that were pre-existing. Actually, I'd say that romantic rejection does more damage long-term for depressive people than short-term damage. The usual breakup trauma isn't the serious thing. It's what it's adding to from the past and then being carried with it into the future. And gender roles being what they are, it's men who make most of the overt overtures without maintaining deniability. Therefore, most men get the lion's share of the romantic rejection, generally a great deal more rejection than acceptance before they ever have a relationship with a woman, if they ever, ever do. That is kind of the name of the game. Canadian author Margaret Atwood famously says, Men worry that women will laugh at them, while women worry men will kill them. And, you know, that's true. But if we're not actually talking about murder, I would add to this that men worry that all the women will say no to all of their romantic or sexual interests every time, while women worry that none of the men will notice them at all, ever. Which is the greatest fear? That you might die? or that you might die alone. I don't know what it's like for gay people, but I don't imagine it's simpler than for the rest of us, especially if they want a partner like we do. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. I put out two invitations in two different weeks to the internet to comment on the experience of being rejected or dumped or having a loved one move on without you and being left alone. On that subject, the internet said nothing, nothing at all. Not a single person agreed to comment about it. Now... I can think of only two possible explanations for the deafening lack of willingness to discuss what is, I'm sure, a pretty common run-of-the-mill human experience. Either people try to forget about the feeling of having someone they're still in love with move on from them to someone else, and being just fine without them, and maybe no one wants to remember that, let alone relive, feel, and talk about it. Or... People are planning to turn these experiences into their very own drop D acoustic songs about the experience and get rich. Breakup songs have certainly turned out moderately well for Taylor Swift. When I was young, I went through the usual, if God is infinitely loving and always fair, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, really, it was, if God is infinitely loving and always fair, why do bad things happen to me? And I read a bunch of books about it back then. But ultimately, it came down to realizing that whatever I was imagining in my head by thinking infinitely loving and always fair, God wasn't whatever it was I was expecting. Oh, sure, I'd been raised to believe that he was always right, always knew better than we did. But still, I learned that he absolutely could not be relied upon to understandably be whatever I was imagining and expecting him to be. And as you get older, lots and lots of bad things happen to many, many good people you know, people far better than you, and you get used to more and more bad things happening to you as well, things that really do seem to be pretty unavoidable and often other people's faults. When the Bible says that God sends evil, it doesn't mean evil as in the fruits of the devil. It just means that unpleasant stuff happens to you. Stuff like cancer, the death of loved ones, all that kind of stuff. As you get older, you get a growing collection of random health problems of varying degrees of severity. I wanted a wife and kids. God gave me multiple sclerosis instead. And I'm really not sure I have any evidence that this was him punishing me for, I don't know, going to watch John Wick at the movies or drinking an Alexander Keith's in a bar or going to see a senior citizen Alice Cooper play his catalog of music. I don't think he was punishing me for pissing off the Brethren, even. I have had to embrace not knowing and understanding everything. Because as you get older, more and more bad stuff happens. You lose more and more, including your faculties, your health, and your loved ones. Eventually, you will lose absolutely everyone and everything that means anything at all to you. And oddly, with age comes resignation, an ease with being content with less. What would have really upset you as a teenager or even 30-something hardly makes a dent. You've had worse. As fundamentalist Christians, we were meant to enjoy our imaginations as to what we imagined an afterlife would be. Things going poorly, just imagine heaven one day. So it raises the question now, will I experience an afterlife? I wouldn't be at all surprised, and if I don't experience an afterlife, I won't be around to be surprised by that either. It makes a little difference. But you know what tries your faith just as much as, why does God let bad things happen to me if he loves me and I'm not bad? Why doesn't God want anything much terribly good to happen to me, no matter how I am? That's the new challenge, all the no one and all the nothing. There's nothing more depressing than nothing. There are always people who need stuff around, and I like being needed. I like being helpful. And I've learned maybe a little bit about not giving away absolutely everything of myself to anyone who asks, of having boundaries, maybe a bit. So there's something left of me to have as I'm losing everything I have and am with the passing years. I remember when I was a young Christian here in the U.S., and uh, people just didn't talk about their doubts. If they did, they talked about it as something from the past. Um, but, uh, I think now more and more people are, are saying, no, this is part of life and this is part of faith and my doubts won't hurt me as much as keeping my doubts a secret or being afraid to admit my doubts will hurt me or pretending that I don't have doubts will hurt me. It's Sunday and I read a chapter of Brian McLaren's book, faith after doubt. He's a believing pastor exploring the topic. Part of what the chapter I just read did was simply identify there being all manner of different kinds of things to believe. The earth being round, your mother loving you, COVID vaccine stopping you from getting COVID, there being a god, your having voted for the best candidate, 2 plus 2 equaling 4, and so on. And also, different parts of our brains, anatomically, that are involved in believing different things. There's belief and there's belief. So in concrete terms, every time I see a five-foot-long snake in my yard that I didn't know was there, it's the frontal lobes of my brain that quite genuinely believe that although all snakes are poisonous to some degree, nothing we've got around here has enough venom to bring down anything larger than a mouse or a frog. But the primal brainstem reptile part of my brain tells my endocrine glands, my hormones and muscles and nerves, that I am quite likely about to die unless I get away from that creature without it attacking me first. And my body genuinely believes that, given what it then gets ready to do. And of course, I will tell you that I believe the first thing. And don't believe the second thing at all, no matter how much it feels like ice water was just dumped down my back, and how fast I'd likely be able to sprint if I somehow overcame the freeze trauma response and switched over to the flight trauma response and ran off. But really, I, as a mechanism composed of many parts, believe both things, and that's just about snakes in the backyard. About personal finances, who should run the country, and how they're doing, and about God and so on. Again... I believe contradictory things. I know that having bought a house, I am in an uncomfortable amount of debt, especially once COVID and the ensuing economic clown show hit. And I know that I haven't paid for even a quarter of this house or the property it is on, and that I have less than zero money. But lying on the futon with my phone in my hand, I feel, and more importantly, act, like this is my house, and that I have money, and therefore can be buying stuff online. I just ordered two pairs of pants and a shower curtain yesterday evening, as my old ones are getting pretty haggard looking. Visa tells me that I've got a bunch of money, but I know that I still get paid exactly the same amount to do my job as I have for years, but suddenly everything costs about five times as much, and on some unlearned level, I believe that maybe our Prime Minister screwed up or screwed around or screwed us over, so we're not financially safe." But if I got the news that someone had blown up our country's politicians this morning, I'd feel terrified, not glad, and believe that something really bad and dangerous had happened, rather than believing they'd deserve this for making it so hard for hard-working people to get by, or that it was time for a new form of government. I am not, it should be clear, an anarchist. I know, I know, people who call themselves anarchists who claim to believe in anarchy do not claim to believe in blowing people and stuff up generally any more than most Christians I've met hate gay people, especially if they are the gay pastor of a gay church. And some Christians do believe that it is wrong for gay people to get married, but they quite like Jay and Joe who live up the street. Point taken, Brian McLaren. We are walking around with literally different parts of our brains, believing very different, sometimes contradictory things. And that is presumably how God made us as believing creatures. And recently I learned, researching for, oh, no reason at all, how senior citizens lose their faculties, I read that just as the brain stem, the reptile brain responsible for breathing and hearts beating and so on, develops first... It is naturally the last thing to go before you die. Similarly, just as the frontal lobes, the rational, emotion superseding abstract abstract-thought-evidence-based thinking parts of your brain, the parts that tell you that although, yes, you feel like you will now die because you failed that test, in fact, people fail tests all the time. And anyway, you have a rewrite scheduled in just two weeks, just as that part of the brain Takes so long to develop in humans, more than a couple of decades actually, as is obvious if you track the belief patterns and behavior of teenagers, that new neocortex part of the brain is the first thing to go. Brain injury, neurological damage, being shit-faced of a Friday evening, being panicked in a crisis situation, or simply getting old, all result in that stuff stopping working first. The last thing you get in terms of brain function is the first thing you lose. So you can lose the voice of the reasoned, measured, evidence-based, sensible, wise part of your believing brain pretty quickly and pretty easily. Four or five two-fours of Bud Light just might be nearly enough to do it, or being 90 years old, or standing beside your car, which is quite evidently on fire. But something else Brian McLaren did in that same chapter was even more interesting to me. He got into the idea that human beings, like horses, he said, are herd animals. I'd have gone with chimps. Because chimps have wars and hunt in packs and so on, while horses are mainly prey animals, rather than the predators and hunters that human beings are. We eat sharks and tigers, after all, and not even chimps can do that. But anyway, in the kind of evolutionary theory that is very much on vogue among Christians of late, McLaren says that some parts of our brains, some of the earliest ones to develop in us, equate rejection by the herd, whether that's family, friends, relationship, job, church group, or whatever, with danger of being like a rabbit or ant or deer that no longer has inclusion in the rabbit, ant or deer Warren Hill herd or whatever to make it no more likely for you to die than any of the others. Now, suddenly, you are vulnerable to who knows, anything. Most of what kept your you together just isn't there anymore. This could well be it for you. Or, so the herd says, and it goes on living as a community just as if you never existed. If you've ever been disowned and cast out by your family or friend group or gotten laid off or fired from a job, gotten excommunicated and shunned by a Christian community or dumped by the person you were probably going to form a couple and maybe a family with, then you know that falling, empty, lost feeling. And you know what it feels like to look on, seemingly from a great distance, at people showing up to Christmas with the family or beer with the guys at the bar or showing up at work Monday morning or Sunday at church or on a date with someone other than you, you can believe that they all suck and that anyway, you're far better off now and that it's really for the best. You can believe that 100% with one part of your brain, with your most aspirational self, while also still believing 100% that now you're f***ed, that this is it for you. There are lions and chimps and wolves that get cast out of herds, fail to integrate into any new ones they encounter, and equally fail to form a new herd of their own. They don't tend to thrive. They tend to be mysteriously scarred, poorly nourished, beaten down, mean creatures who aren't going to bear young and have no real place to be. You'll see them in the trees and wonder, what's that one doing there without any others of its own kind? Obviously, I identify. And somehow, although I know what it's like to get dumped, to get laid off, to get excommunicated and shunned and all of that, I can't easily call to mind what is supposed to be the front half of those bad experiences at the end. The girls who eventually dumped me have generally retained deniability throughout our dealings in terms of ever having been with me to start with. I've worked a number of jobs. I was never formally hired as a permanent full-time or official employee yet, and I have never joined a church. I know that horrible feeling of being shunted off to one side, of being tossed into the ditch while the vehicle is still in motion, but I can't really remember ever enjoying or sticking with any human activity or interaction at all that involved more than maybe three people, including me, in my whole life. But it's the middle of April, and most of the snow is gone. My nephew is over visiting me again to get away from the city to see nature fly his drone and so on for a couple of days. I'm going to meet my sister later to drop him off with her. I saw my parents last week. I'm supposed to see Brad and Emily this evening for an Easter supper delayed by the ice storm and power outage we had that, although it happened only a couple of weeks ago, has faded abruptly with the sudden disappearance of the snow and the ensuing eruption of life so that opening any window at night in my house sounds like this. I'm even supposed to meet some guys in a pub for beers later this week and record one of them playing guitar in a couple of weeks. And it's not vacation, so I'm employed as the den mother of three herds of teenage students a day, showing them the ancient ways and how to do various little things that I know how to do. Things like apostrophes and capitals and the fact that computer mice have two rather than just one button on them and what the right button does. It's Sunday. As to Christian community, I've been cut loose long ago and have failed to reintegrate or thrive anywhere. As to women, I will never be anything more than the platonic, older voice of reason, the calming facilitator of a sense of proportion and making plans for the future. God and women have spoken on that. But as to most other things, I'm doing just fine, or so I believe, with most of myself." This song was another drop-D tuning one, with more of a punky or 90s unplugged alt-rock acoustic tone, Nirvana unplugged rather than a country twangy drop-D one like Man of Constant Sorrow, and I'd simply recorded voice and acoustic guitar with a bass track to a drum loop from an old CD. This was long before I was using my modern gear or Pro Tools or anything, though it was recorded on an old Windows XP computer. As this episode approached, I realized that this song had a drum loop and that I hadn't really offered Evan the chance to possibly play a digital drum kit part on it, so I sent it off to him. I was thinking of a nice, stripped-down version, fairly lo-fi, without all the stuff added in that I've been doing every single time with every song lately. So I fired the guide track off to Evan with the drum loop I'd played the song to and without it.
3: Wish was a I could play you. Wish was-
0: Evan and I fired a few different approaches to it back and forth over email, with me as usual asking for quieter and fewer cymbals, because I'm getting a single drum track without being able to mix it. So, um- Evan cheekily ended the song on the take I ended up using with a ride cymbal bell hit, knowing how much trouble ride cymbals have always given me to try to bury in the mix, especially when they bleed into the other mics as much as they do when you use mics. So I was determined not to simply do a 90s quiet, loud, quiet, loud thing with big distorted guitars crashing in on the choruses, and I had a nice stripped-down lo-fi version. The acoustic guitars were what they were, and I left them that way. The bass was poorly recorded, so I tried to clean it up as much as was possible, which wasn't very possible, so I both cleaned it up and dirtied it up a bit. I realized I wanted to change the lyrics slightly, so I'd have to re-sing those, leaving the main vocal track until the end.
3: And I know you walk around out there without a thought, without a care. I know what I am, the role I play, right here, right now, right here.
0: But after adding in some tasteful percussion, I decided to add just the one harmony vocal, you know, just to see how just one harmony vocal would sound. And... Predictably led astray by the gods of harmony Swept away and seduced into pop aesthetics Soon enough, I found I'd made this
3: But I'm not, so I'll just go I know what I am, a role I play Right here, right now, right here today In the animal kingdom I will always stay Irrelevant, and I know you Of care Of me and how I feel and it's not fair But that's irrelevant
0: Now that was getting uncomfortably lush And hooky and radio pop friendly Blew right past Nirvana Unplugged Into badly recorded Avril Lavigne territory I thought But that's what happened And so that's what I got <laughs>
3: Wish I was a castle so I could keep you. Wish I was a house so I could shelter you. Wish I was a garden so I could grow with you. But I'm not, so I'll just go. I know what I have, the role I play. Right here, right now, right here today. In the animal kingdom I will always stay irrelevant. So I could take you Wish I was a ship so I could anchor you Wish I was a plane so I could fly you But I'm not so I'll just go I know what I have, the role I play Right here, right now, right here today In the animal kingdom I will always stay I wish I was a horse so I could bear you, wish I was a dog so I could walk with you, if I was a bird I would fly to you, but I'm not so I'll just go. I know what I am, the role I play, right here, right now, right here today, in the animal kingdom I will always stay, an elephant. I know you walk around out there Without a thought, without a care For me and how I feel, and it's not fair But that's irrelevant 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 Irrelevant